One of the interesting things about the Bible is rarely do the writers who make up the books in the Bible argue for the existence of God. And you might say, why? That seems like a really fundamental question. Why don't they do that? Well, because virtually everyone in the ancient world believed in a deity, although the conceptions of that deity varied widely. That said, there are a few places in the Bible that do argue um, for the existence of God in one way or another or make a case for God. Some by pointing out how improbable it is that everything around us just came into existence by accident. Other places that point out that we have this really complex world that also shows evidence of design and that must give some idea that there's a designer. And there's still others that, um, other passages that talk about this human um, kind of common a set of assumptions around what morality looks like, and that exists around the globe and through time, um, a common understanding of right and wrong that seems to be hardwired in us. Now, that doesn't prove that God exists, although I do think these arguments and others give a compelling case that's fairly powerful. But that's not the what I want to talk about today, because there's another important question that we need to consider, and that is, if God exists, why should I care? And the answers often given fall into one of two categories. Either there is the carrot or the stick. Let me start with the stick arguments, and that is that we should care because, at least in the Christian conception of God, God is a holy God. And we can readily admit, uh, even though it may be hard for us to acknowledge, that we don't match up to whatever God has for us. God is holy, and that means that there will be consequences. Some consequences we experience now, kind of the natural consequences of uh, living out in ways that are contrary to the way God intends for us. And some of those consequences may come in the future when there's a sort of accounting, like an annual performance appraisal that comes at the end of our lives, um, when God uh, judges us, if you will, for what we've done. It's not a popular idea, but it is in the Bible, and there's more nuance to that than I've simply described here. The carrot ideas or carrot arguments are much more popular. The idea that God deeply loves each one of us, that in a relationship with him, we find peace and meaning and purpose and guidance and strength for eternity that we would not have if we did not have a relationship with God. And the ultimate example of this, Christians believe, comes in Jesus Christ and in what he did. It's an idea summarized in a verse in, uh, that St. Paul wrote in Romans 5.8 when he says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I don't know where you are on either of these questions. You may or may not believe that God exists, and even if you believe, you may not agree with us on what God looks like. But regardless of all of that, I just want to invite you to listen in today to um, a particular idea about God that's given us in a little book in the Bible called 1 John. John tries to describe not only who God is, but why we should care in this little letter. Last week, Devin gave a great overview of the book. He mentioned that the writer is traditionally believed to be John the Apostle. Now, it's not named in the book, um, but the writing is similar to the biography of Jesus that, that John provides. Um, he was a close friend of Jesus, in fact, maybe his closest friend. So there's good evidence that perhaps he is the author, probably is the author. So we'll make that assumption. John led a network of house churches um, that faced a crisis. A few of their closest friends had... Straight. They had broken away, denied some of the core beliefs that they had all shared. They claimed to be close to God, but one of the things that didn't seem to match up is they didn't walk the talk. In other words, they may have said they believed certain things, but they didn't actually behave that way. And they didn't see the problem. They claimed that they weren't even sinning, even though what those who remained in the church saw was that their behavior wasn't consistent with the kinds of things that they had been taught. 
And it bothers us when people today, even today, when their beliefs and actions don't match up. And so we often use a word that Jesus introduced to us, and that is the idea of being a hypocrite. In other words, what we are is not what we say we are. What we really want is people who are authentic and genuine and real. And that's why John wrote this book. His goal was to describe genuine, authentic faith. Now, as Devin mentioned last week, John bounces around in this book, and that makes it challenging to read. Rather than sustain a clear line of logic, A to B to C, what he will do is introduce a theme, then he'll introduce another theme, then he goes back to the first theme, then he introduces a third theme and goes back to maybe even the first or second. So he wanders around from subject to subject. So to make it more uh, maybe comprehensible to all of us, what we've done for this series is put sections together by theme so that we can take one theme each week. And our theme this week is obedience. The idea that the way to judge a true believer is when you see them obeying what God commands, to walk the talk. Now that's what made John so hard on his opponents, those who claimed to know God, but their lives were not consistent with what they claimed. In fact, some of them thought that obedience was optional, and John did not. There's two main places in the book where John takes this idea up. One is four verses in chapter 2, and then also uh, the first part of chapter 3. I want to start first in chapter 2 and use these four short verses to explain the ideas that John has about obedience. Here's how he summarizes what authentic faith looks like in chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. And the words will be on the screen, but if you'd like to follow along in one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page, uh, I think it's 1857. Yeah, 1857. Let's read these verses. Um, He says, beginning in verse 3, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, the first thing we need to understand here is uh, this phrase, to know, or to know God. What, is, what does he mean by knowing God? Well, in the ancient world, there were a couple of ideas, at least, that were floating around about what it meant to know God. And the first was an intellectual notion, that the idea of knowing God was an intellectual exercise. It's the equivalent of knowing facts about God. And it was really the dominant view in the classical world of, of uh, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, about five to 600 years before Jesus was on the scene. They saw religion, or at least exploration of God, as a purely mental exercise, like doing higher math or physics. And the result is is that they had some information, but it had little effect on their lives. In fact, some of the folks who even spent a lot of time thinking about this weren't particularly good people. That's why John says in verse 4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. The second approach came much later. It's more contemporary with the time of Jesus, and it too originated in Greek culture, and it was what you might call a more emotional approach. Some of these folks belonged to what they called mystery religions, religions that were very experiential. So they believed that feeling God in their lives was far more important than knowing facts about him, and it led them to search for experiences that led to higher and higher levels of emotion. Some did this to escape the challenges of everyday life, some just to enhance it. So which of these approaches is right? Well, John rejects both of them and proposes a third way. Instead of a solely intellectual exercise or emotional approach, he does suggest that information is important and that faith needs to be experienced. But he also adds in 
that we need to live that faith out. His idea is that we don't have to puzzle this all out. In fact, God took initiative with us. He revealed himself to us, both in the Bible and in the person of Jesus. But to know God can't just be intellectual. It can't just be personal, even though both of those things are important. It needs to be lived out. So faith to John is much more than a mental assent to a set of theological ideas, although, again, facts are important. It's much more than an emotional experience, although a relationship also is important. It must be lived out. That's why John writes in verse 3, This is how we can be sure we know we are in Him. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commands. So, intellectually, it's important to know things about God. We can't set that aside. But it also should change our lives. Yes, it needs to be an experience, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But we also have to show that we believe it. So that's why John says in verse 6, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So we need to walk the talk, to authentically live out our faith in action. Now all this talk about obedience raises an issue. And from what he writes, it makes it sound as if, if we don't do this absolutely perfectly, we may be screwed. In fact, in verse 4 he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. I don't know about you, but that raises my blood pressure because I'm not perfect. In fact, I'm far from it. So you begin to wonder, if I make even one mistake, does that mean I'm out of luck? And yet, while perfection is the goal, some of you may remember what Devin read to us last week in in chapter 1, verse 8, when it said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. So what is it, being perfect or this reality that we never quite get there? How do we reconcile these? Well, in the first part of verse 5, John writes, But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And the word complete could also be translated as perfect. And the literal idea here is that if we obey, our faith in God is being perfected. In other words, it's a process. So while it's the goal, and we should seriously take that goal, it's also something that is a process within us, an ongoing thing that takes a lifetime. So this doesn't mean that those of us who know God will never fail, but rather that increasingly our lives ought to be characterized by ongoing obedience. In other words, we're trying. We're making progress. Now the sobering reality, and this is what John's trying to point out about the folks who had left their community, was that um, some of these folks weren't trying, and worse yet, they didn't even care. They, John said, should be concerned. But those who seek to please God with what they do can have full confidence that they know God and He knows them. So that's a little bit of a foundation from chapter 2. What I want to do now is skip to chapter 3, beginning with the first verse, to take up this topic again. Now this is a longer section. We don't have as much time. So I'm not going to talk about everything. I'm going to try to add some layers to what we've already learned about this idea of obedience. And hopefully we'll have some more insights. Now, when he moves back to this theme in in, uh, chapter 3, he starts with a different topic. And this is what he says. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. What great love he's lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And it's remarkable because John says it's because of God's love that we have the privilege of being called his children. And he says for emphasis, and that is what we are. 
Now, here's what's interesting. It's not uncommon for us, even today, to talk about being God's children. It's an idea that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. The first book of Genesis tells us that we're created in God's image. And that gives us great dignity, although John here goes further to make this personal by saying we're children of God. Let me try to explain the difference between the two within a human analogy. It's not perfect, but I think it helps. And it's the analogy about the difference between paternity and parenthood. Paternity is to be responsible for the existence of a child, but it can be as impersonal as simply a biological relationship and nothing more. But parenthood, at least in the ideal form, is an intimate, loving relationship. And interestingly, while parenthood um, uh, often, but not exclusively, goes with paternity, it doesn't have to. In other words, parenthood is much deeper and more personal than paternity. One of the reasons this idea even occurred to me this week is I was listening to a podcast um, featuring an interview with a woman named Lisa Brennan Jobs. And if you kind of catch her last name, she is Steve Jobs' um, daughter by a girlfriend that Steve Jobs had when he was in his early 20s. And it's a really complicated story. But when she was born, he denied paternity. He said, I'm not this, this, daughter, this child's father. And he publicly denied this, even though he named a computer Lisa. Um, and he later admitted he named it after her. It wasn't until she was almost 10 years old when they reconciled and he acknowledged and accepted his paternity. And from that time on, it's a really complicated relationship. But more and more, he became her father. He embraced parenthood. He wasn't a great father, but she did feel and learn that he loved her and cared for her. So it was a transition from paternity to parenthood. Now, in a much, much greater way, in a perfect way, what John is talking about is that really, when we come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we are coming into that by grace through faith, but we are entering into a really important parenthood kind of relationship. We're children of God. It has a huge payoff. Now, if God is a great big mind in the sky, an impersonal computer-like being who just thinks things up, then the idea of a relationship with God isn't very appealing. But if we think about a loving God who embraces us as a parent, that is much more significant. At the end of verse 2, John takes this idea just even a little bit further. He says, We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him and we shall be, uh, see him as he is. Now, the New Testament tells us that one day Jesus will return. He, he left this earth in the ascension um, after his resurrection. And the so-called second coming is really fascinating to many. When I teach our high school kids catechism, it's the first question they want to know about. You know, what's this deal about the second coming? They want to know how we can predict. And, and I'll just tell you, my opinion is people spend way too much time trying to predict when Jesus is going to return. So don't ask me when he is coming back. I don't know. And frankly, all the people who spend a lot of time trying to figure it out don't know either. But we do know that one day Jesus will return. And John tells us it's then that we'll have an even clearer image for who he is, idea of who he is. We'll see with greater clarity what our lives ought to look like. In the next few verses, John makes the point that those who have a relationship with Jesus will not continue to sin. So in verse 6, he says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. Now again, the idea here isn't that we'll be perfect but that we will not continue in a pattern of sin. And if we do, we'll have great remorse and a desire to change. When we sin, forgiveness is secured for us in Jesus. That's why in verse 5 he says, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sin. 
The sobering reality is that there is a battle, a battle between God and the devil. And to be clear, it's not a fair fight. Sure, Satan has some power. That's why in verse 8, John writes, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. But as powerful as Satan is, he doesn't even have a fraction of the power that God has. God, uh, Satan is relentless. He'll use any foothold he can to destroy us. That's why at the end of verse um, 8 is so important. When John writes, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Satan's power is real, but it's a power that only comes when we or others allow him to have influence. Those who allow themselves to come under Satan's influence may find themselves trapped into a pattern of sin. In a time when few believe in the power of Satan, this is serious. But again, the power of God is far greater. So we don't need to fear because Jesus came to destroy Satan's goal of leading people into sin. The end of this section in verse 10, um, John summarizes it all this way. He says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Whoever does not do what is right is not God's child. So the way we see the evidence of whether we're connected to God or not has to do with the quality of our lives. And so he concludes really by connecting these two ideas that we see in chapter 3. The first idea that we are children of God He says, if we're children of God, we have not a paternity relationship, but a parenthood relationship, a close relationship, and then out of gratitude, we will live that out by doing what's right. Now, how do we live this out? Well, you're probably thinking, duh, of course, I just have to buckle down and obey. Isn't that what pastors are supposed to tell people? And uh, they probably are. But um, we also need to acknowledge the elephant in the room, and that is that we live in a time with that sort of thinking, the thinking about, you know, you ought to do this or thou shalt not do that, isn't very popular. So it might be good for me not just to tell you what, but why it is that this is so important. Why is this in a best interest to do what God asks of us? The conventional wisdom today is that our preferences should take precedence over everything. Like choosing your own adventure, we get to choose our own moral path. And rather than trusting an authority or a tradition for our moral standards, we trust our own intuition. We do what feels right in the moment. And freedom here is the ultimate value. But quickly you can see the problem with that approach, at least some of the problems. And one is that we all have little differences in what we think are right and wrong. So who gets to actually decide what's best? Now some would say, well, it's just live and let live. You do what you think is important to you, I'll do what's important to me. But the truth is is that we are not entirely indifferent to the choices of others. For example, what do you do when somebody you think has crossed a line? Do you remain silent or do you say something? So you cross paths with someone that is embracing an ideology of white supremacy or even more diabolical, a terrorist or a pedophile. Do they get to decide what's right for themselves? The truth is is that at some level, we all have a set of absolutes. That's why we all agree that allowing women and children to starve is evil, that bombing impoverished communities is wrong, and that buying and selling another human being is is, uh, depraved. So we all do have ideas about right and wrong, about just and unjust, about fair and unfair, which implies that there is some sort of standard out there. But what do we do when we read the Bible and we find something that at least to us doesn't make sense? John's answer is that if we really want to walk the talk, we need to obey. Otherwise, we'll be a hypocrite. Now, one argument for obedience is uh, that the moral choices in the Bible are wise, so they work. 
Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't steal. If we actually live those commands out, we'd live in a lot better world, wouldn't we? But that raises a question. Do we only do these things because they work? We have a common expression in our culture, and that is that honesty is the best policy. And of course we say that is, at least that's conventional wisdom. But the problem is, is that if we only think about this in a utilitarian sense, about what works, then in the end, we may be actually tempted to abandon it if we find out that it doesn't work. Because sometimes it doesn't work. It may work to our detriment to tell the truth. So if we only make what is best or what works or what seems to be um, uh, appropriate in the moment, we will eventually be tempted to lie. Now let me give you a little bit of a trivial example. When I was growing up, I was told that the commandments were good. Um, they were good for us because they work. And one example people would give is an Old Testament um, prohibition uh, in Leviticus about eating pork. So Jews and now actually Muslims today do not eat pork. Now, it was a little puzzling to me because we didn't do that. I mean, we're Christians. We could set that aside. But they would say, see how wise God was because eating raw or undercooked pork will give you trichinosis, a disease. So God actually was protecting them from getting sick. Now, I, was, I don't know if I was a normal child, but it didn't make sense to me because I thought, why didn't God just tell them to cook it longer? <laughs> Plus, the person telling me was eating a pulled pork sandwich. Just kidding. But, um, but I began to think, well, wait a second. Does that really make sense? Maybe honesty isn't the best policy. It's the only policy. In other words, maybe we just need to obey even when we aren't sure why. Maybe the commandments that God gave Moses, the commandments that Jesus reinforced, don't all need to make sense. Maybe God just wanted them and us to obey. And I know that goes against the grain of everything our culture believes. But I've come to believe that there are times when God wants us to obey Him, not because it works, even if it does, but because it's right. In other words, obedience is a discipline. It's a willingness to submit to God despite what might seem right to us in the moment. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that honesty is the best policy, but I also think it's the only policy. We don't see the big picture like God does. He's a good God who wants the best for us. That's why he calls us his children. But sometimes we have to obey just because. Now, here's another example, and it's a lot more challenging for us in our culture today. Many of you know that the Bible tells us is that sex is reserved for marriage. That means by extension that sex outside of marriage and living together are wrong, according to the Bible. But few today agree. In fact, many believe that, for example, living together is a really great thing. It's smart because that trial run helps us understand whether that marriage might last, except that it doesn't. Couples who live together before marriage have a higher rate of divorce. Sociologists have found that sliding into a relationship makes it far easier to slide out later, even if there's a marriage that, that takes place in the meantime. And the point here is not to pick on one issue, but I do believe that the moral guidelines in the Bible are for our good, but that doesn't mean that everything that God asks of us is going to make sense to us in the moment, maybe even not in the future. But that said, I don't believe that God is capricious. Instead, I believe we can obey knowing that he has our best interests in mind and can be trusted even when we're not sure why. Now, you'll remember the beginning of chapter 3, this part where he talks about us being his children. If God were a great big mind, then I think we'd find this notion of obedience more troubling. We'd think that he's just making us jump around just for his own pleasure. But knowing that we have a God who calls us his children, 
who loves us deeply, changes everything. A God who calls us his children is someone we can trust. So let's be people that walk the talk, people who obey what we know God asks of us, even if we're not sure in the moment, knowing that he can be trusted. And in the process, we will demonstrate that our faith is truly authentic. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are grateful that you reveal facts to us, that in the writings of the Bible uh, that were written over hundreds of years by many different authors, you've revealed things to us that help us know who you are. We're mostly grateful that you sent your son Jesus, who is a God come to earth, God in the flesh, who helps us see what you are like. And Father, we also thank you that we can experience you in a relationship with your son Jesus. So we're not just left with ideas in our heads, but an experience in our lives and our hearts. And we also, out of gratitude then, commit to obey you, trusting you with our lives, even when we don't understand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.